0: This episode is sponsored by United Overseas Bank, winner of the Banking Technology Awards, Best UX and CX and Finance Initiative, for its product tomorrow. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech? The podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures and joining me today are Sharon Kimathi, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hi. Hey. Hey and Stuart Smith, Executive Director and Head of Regional Engagement Platforms and User Experience Design at United Overseas Bank. Hi. Brilliant to have you on. Uh, This episode is entitled Tomorrow Never Dies in honor of the award-winning digital bank Stuart firm has launched in Singapore. More on that later. Uh, Up first, as ever though, is the News in Numbers segment. This is where we've all gone out and picked up on big numbers in the news at uh, the start of uh, this year and seeing which, uh, which ones have caught our eye. So, Stuart, you're our guest. Uh, you can go first. What what number in the news has caught your eye this week?
1: Uh, there's an article uh, about uh, yet another investor uh, yeah, coming into Singapore in the fintech space. I think it's iStocks landed 50 million from large Japanese investors. Uh, it's not my particular particular area i'm not an expert in this particular space but what it does show again i think my adopted home city of singapore is attracting a lot a lot of fintech activity and a lot of investment into the market and um operating here it's very very um even in our in our COVID restricted times it's very very busy here where uh there's a lot of digital activity a lot of fintech activity it's quite exciting times actually so um for me you know, I see these headlines and I smile. And I think, yes, well done. Uh, more people into the into the ecosystem, into the network. So that caught my eye.
0: Excellent. Yeah, and I think. Um... Yeah, Singapore has one of the, probably the healthiest and most active startup scenes in, in Southeast Asia, that's that's for sure. Uh, and even the growth there doesn't show any sign of, of slowing even in the wake of, of the pandemic. I mean, uh, we've had plenty of rounds occur just this month. Um, we have iStocks as mentioned, but also um, uh, Grab Financial, nabbed uh, 300 million in a series A uh, and also secured a 2 billion loan facility. Then there was uh, 5 million for educational technology firm, kite and six million for uh, investment company uh, Zipmex. So, there's definitely there's definitely lots uh, going on there. Um, Sharon, what, what's your take on this news?
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I think Singapore is uh, a hot market, especially for digital payments. So, according to Statista's uh, market segment analysis, they believe that digital payments uh, had a total transaction value of 11.2 million in tw- wool. Have eleven point two million in twenty twenty one. So it looks like it'll still stay hot. And of course, as you said, um, there was follow pay as well, um, and also there there are certain agreements too in place taking. Uh, a, a move forward, especially when it comes to the payment space. So, Singapore and Thailand uh, will link their payment systems together, and it's going to take place sometime in the middle of this year. So, they're calling this a world first, and it's going to be called Pay Now. And it's a payment collection application used by Singapore's banks, which will link to Thailand's Prompt Pay, which is a real time payments platform. So, it's also looking like Uh, The national focus from a regulatory level as well is to enhance their payments capabilities. I guess it reflects Statista's report, too.
0: I'll bring in my my news and numbers after after that, which is um, we're heading south towards Australia, uh, and I have uh, two numbers to present for my one. Um, As 86400, which is both the name of a challenger bank and a number, you can't convince me otherwise, has sold itself or been sold, uh, to National Australia Bank (NAB) uh, for 169 million dollars, which is my second number. Um, this follows uh, the December implosion of fellow Aussie challenger bank Zinja, which failed to keep keep up with its own attractive interest rates uh, and the explosion in deposits it accrued. Uh, however, um, it's important to note that 86400 isn't disappearing, uh, at least not yet. It's uh, coming under the NAB umbrella and combining with the bank's existing digital offshoot, Ubank, Um, 86400 has around 85,000 customers and 320,000 accounts, um, 375 million in Australian dollars in deposits and 270 million Australian in mortgages. Uh, NAB was already a, a minority shareholder in the Challenger, uh, having invested in its Series B funding round, and now it's it's nabbed up the rest of the show. Uh, 86400 CEO Robert Bell said that the deal would uh, quite significantly fast track his firm's growth and help it to achieve things that it might otherwise, that might otherwise have taken, he says, five years. Um, however, there's been a lot of talk about whether there'd be some uh, intense regulatory scrutiny over this one, because NAB being one of the big four in Australia, big four banks which hold, a, no one can argue, an oligopoly over the, the tech scene and the banking scene, uh, watchdogs might not take too kindly to it snaffling up a potential future competitor. Uh, NAB, for its part, uh, reckons that the deal should be fine because UBank and I quote is actually quite separate from the main bank. Um but it's an interesting development, especially in a marketplace where there are uh, uh, four major banks making up a lot of the market share. And there could be a lot of there's a lot of eyebrows raised over one of them taking up such a nascent uh, competitor. But, um, yeah, Sharon, what, do you, what do you think about this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. M&A has been a strong theme last year. And I think there's no slowing it down this year. I mean, we spoke about BBVA's um, merger with PNC and all of the fintechs that it's shuttering due to that merger. And s and Global as well think that um, after an initial slowdown because of COVID last year, the tech sector actually rebounded quite strongly with acquirers spending more than $600 billion on big bets in key markets such as enterprise software uh, semiconductors, fintechs. Um, and given the blockbuster deals, which were announced in the second half of 2020, and boy, weren't they lows that we've talked about as well in this podcast, especially in the last season, there will be some 420 billion transactions worth 7 trillion anticipated this year. Um, and that's according to S&P Global. And they mainly believe, again, it's going to be within the digital payment space. Um, So they estimate that it's going to actually be worth 48 trillion by 2030. And that was according to their November research from Accenture. So they both worked on this uh, research report. Um, And they were basically talking about how the coronavirus pandemic has sped up the shift towards digital payments at a pace that banks could not have predicted, is what they believe. So it looks like uh, when it comes to M&As, it is actually going to be more of a payments outlook. And I guess with the digital banking capabilities, that certainly does come into play. So I suppose with NABs thinking behind the 86-400 merger, they wanted to make their um, offerings a bit more more digitally and easily accessible. What do you think about it, Stuart? Any thoughts?
1: I think – look, I think um – we're still on the upside of the curve I think what we'll start to see is a lot more consolidation I think um the the last year in particular we've seen a lot of the neo banks the famous neo banks in particular start to either struggle for for a path to profitability or overtly search for a path to profitability and start to become um uh uh, more sustainable i think i think investors are looking for that as well i think inevitably we'll see more consolidation uh, i think earlier on we mentioned eight six four hundred in australia i think what that shows as well is that that building a bank is a long game and against in an, in a market like australia where we've got um, despite many missteps you know that you've still got four very dominant banks there i think um it, it's still very, very uh, hard to break in. Payments, uh, payments is a volume business. Uh, there are lots of areas for innovation. In two, three years, we'll see more consolidation, and we'll see some very, very big um, mergers.
2: Well, excellent. Um, I guess that takes me to my number, which is three point four billion. Uh, so, Robin Hood, the um, trading apps that was in the hotspot especially during last week's podcast, uh, as it was at the heart of the Wall Street stock market chaos uh, that took place in January, has actually raised $3.4 billion. Uh, So that's more than the fintech has raised in its lifetime, having been founded back in 2013. Uh, the scrambling capital raise follows days of complaints from customers and the eventual le- levy of class action lawsuits. So the online brokerage, prior to the rapid mega fundraising didn't hold enough reserves to meet, quote, regulatory capital requirements. So it meant that it had to limit trading in 13 volatile equities, including GameStop and AMC. But clients could sell positions but couldn't open new ones. And still to this day, uh, it is the exact same thing, Um, even though the stocks within both of those Uh, companies have gone quite low. So Vlad Tenev, Robinhood's co-CEO, told Elon Musk in a clubhouse session, as reported by CNBC, that the National Securities Clearing Corp requested a security deposit of $3 billion to back up volatile stocks. And Robinhood negotiated $3 billion down to $1.4 billion. Oh, how nice it is to get to negotiate with regulators about your actual regulatory requirements must be nice. But it still meant that the fintech needed to raise fresh capital in order to unlock restricted stocks. And the surge in collateral requirements and resulting uproar amongst Robinhood customers has also sparked government intervention. So Tenev will be attending a hearing before a House Financial Services Committee on 18th February, according to Politico. The hearing will review allegations made Uh, In January, that Robinhood succumbed to pressure from big paying hedge fund clients to curb trading, i.e. Citadel. Um, So when it comes to this story, we've already spoken last week about how it's essentially a two way street with your retail investors on one side, um, just trying to do what it is that the market alleges to do, which is that it's a free market. But Uh, we were all I guess I wasn't really that surprised but people were a little bit taken aback by how um, that claim certainly is not true as they locked it all up quite quickly but what are your thoughts about it Alex?
0: Uh, Yeah um, I mean uh, last week we we talked about I mean I think I I remember saying last time we spoke that I I said as we recorded that that, that things could change rapidly and they did on the day we recorded as uh, Jimmy fell by like 30% Thirty percent on the day we recorded, I believe, and then fell a further thirty percent the following day, um, which people believe is off the back of the trading holes put in place by retail investment apps like Robinhood. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it, it has this very Dickensian sort of uh, slant to it, uh, of the downtrodden um, retail investor uh, going up against the the haughty um, day trader in in Wall Street. Uh, and I think I, I do, I did see a snippet of that interview, of that interview in air quotes with Elon Musk and, and Vlad Tenev, where I think he, uh, Musk referred to Tenev as uh, Vlad the stock impaler, which was an interesting turn of phrase. Um, but I, it, it, we should see... Uh, I have seen things that uh, GME's price is going up again now that Robin has lifted its trade restrictions. But I think it also shows the um, the extent to which sometimes digital enablement of retail investors can be uh, something that firms aren't particularly prepared for. I mean, we, we were just talking about challenger banks and how um, Zinja in Australia wasn't quite prepared for the amount of deposits it was going to receive when it offered an extremely attractive interest rate. And I remember looking at that story some time ago and they, them saying they expected to have $100 million in deposits it's within six months and they got $100 million in uh, nine days. And it sort of shows that like sometimes um, when you uh, you create these avenues open to a large-scale uh, investment and large-scale uh, participation from the retail market, um, that issue of scale is, is always there. In this case, for Robinhood, it, it, it was a, a massive issue of scale. And like you said, it's required them to stump up quite a bit of, of capital to, to finance uh, these issues. But it's an ongoing story. So it's hard to make any predictions as to how this is going to keep going and how the market's going to react, regulators react. Um, but it's definitely a really interesting one that's, that's shaking things up. Um, Stuart, have you, have you got any uh, any insight on, on this story?
1: Um, on, I mean, on, only as an outside observer looking at the, the Robin Hood, and I think ultimately, having haven't been involved in, in digital for a long time, um, longer than I care to mention. We seem to be reaching some point where a lot—it's uh, almost—I think to your point, some of these things are inevitable. So, you, if you offer a, a very attractive interest rate, why did you not expect everybody to to move in, and and, and how did you not anticipate the scale? Likewise the ability of of individuals you know using Robin Hood and Reddit. Um, if you empower people through digital technologies, at some point, uh, I think in the last decade we've learned this, right, whether it be on on through Facebook or you know the Arab Spring, that the the people will act and they will come together in in fairly either I think I think with foresight, unpredictable ways, but with hindsight entirely logical ways. So I think this is one of the challenges that regulators and banks and everybody faces in terms of uh, digital and digital transformation about, um, you know, every individual has a supercomputer in their hand and has access to it and has access to uh, way more information than, than they did when we first, you know, started to develop financial services. And, and I think that's part of the, the change. So, so whilst I'm not an expert on the, on the, on day trading on Robin Hood, we watch from the outside and think, wow. Okay, there. But for the grace of God, and uh, likewise, you know, whilst we might welcome a rush of depositors, it it would, um, no doubt cause cause problems. So we so we we're very careful with this, and I think uh, I think there are lessons to be learned from everybody. But it it is what it is. The world it's the kind of world we've made for ourselves at this point.
0: Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is where we focus the discussion down into a specific industry topic or sector. Uh, We're going to be talking about digital banking in the Southeast Asian market and beyond. Um, But before Sharon asks her questions, uh, Stuart, this is your chance to give us a little bit of extra information about yourself, about uh, United Overseas Bank and about tomorrow. So uh, take it away.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Stuart Smith. I am currently the Regional Head of Engagement Platforms and User Experience Design at the Tomorrow Digital Bank, uh, which is part of United Overseas Bank. For listeners that aren't familiar with Singapore, uh, United Overseas Bank, we're the third largest bank in, uh, in Singapore, alongside our our um, colleagues at uh, DBS and OCBC. We're 84 years old. Uh, we have Offices in 159 countries, um, we have about 25,000 employees around the world, um, but primarily United Overseas Bank is an ASEAN-focused bank, so we're extremely um, uh, well-positioned and strong in, in, obviously, in Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, and Vietnam, so the, uh, the, 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 the true ASEAN bank, as it were. Um, my job, I joined the bank about three and a half years ago, uh, specifically to help build um, a digital bank, uh, which at the time wasn't called Tomorrow, it was just called Digital Bank Project. And um, previous to that, I'd worked um, in, in many different industries and uh, I actually was working at the University of Singapore uh, as a as professor of digital innovation design and the bank tempted me to come and take this challenge on. So could we build a digital bank from scratch um, across ASEAN? And the, that became uh, the bank we now know is tomorrow. Yeah. So that's me and what I've been doing.
2: Well, that's amazing. And congratulations on winning the Banking Technologies Awards, Best UX and CX in Finance Initiative for Tomorrow by UOB. Can you tell us a little bit more about tomorrow from how it came about to the tech behind it? Uh, yes. So,
1: um The genesis of tomorrow is that we, and we've been very um, public about this. You will be. We we wanted to be. uh, Well, we are an ASEAN bank, and we want to strengthen that position. We recognise that the ASEAN market has um, some unique, fairly unique trends. Compared to other parts of the world, so uh, let me give you some of those. So the first thing is ASEAN, and, and again I, I define that as uh, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, and Thailand. is a very is a fairly young population. I think something like sixty percent of people are under thirty five years of age, uh, which is markedly different to other parts of the world. So fairly young, um, extremely mobile enabled. So uh, anybody who knows Indonesia or Thailand will know that those markets have uh, incredible mobile penetration. So on average, I think the figure is around about 50 to 60 percent of everybody uh, in in those countries has access or owns a smartphone of some type. And um, what we began to realize that, that if we were to grow, our business, our franchise. We needed to reach out and attract, especially in those markets, a uh, uh, younger, uh, more digitally uh, enabled, if you like, a customer. So from that, so from that kind of high level premise, we started to do a lot of work. We did a, a huge. Um, ethnographic study, um, which we which was which was quite interesting because we made a lot of senior managers and MDs and others spend a lot of time in people's kitchens in Thailand, in Jakarta, in Bangkok, uh, um, Bandung, Surabaya, all these places, asking people, you know, fairly you know, deep questions, philosophical questions about the nature of retail banking. What would they want from a digital bank? I think up until then, quite often banks who digitized mainly tried to digitize what they had either through through the web or into a, into a device. And we figured there might be a, a better way to go about it. And we might start with a customer and ask them what they actually wanted to do. And we began to re- realize that people wanted to, they wanted to bank differently, but they still wanted the trust that came with the bank. Um, and you will be is very, um, well-known in this part of the world and very well respected for being a a trusted bank, uh, very secure. Um, Often sometimes we're, we're seen as being conservative, which I think is unfair. Um, We we're just very trusted, humble bankers. We don't try to um, be too flash, I think. So we wanted to build a, a proposition that would, um, attract uh, I guess millennials we use millennials as the catch-all term it's more specific than that but but let's stick with millennials to um, come to you will be and to, also, to offer a, a range of services and a, and a banking experience that was markedly different even from what was available um, in, the, in the current markets. So that, those kind of high-minded premise formed the basis of tomorrow and from there we began to build. Uh, experiment concept. Um, we spent about a year and a half actually, just in a in a in what we might be call a whiteboard phase, right? we We didn't really start a code um, until very late in the day. actually,, uh, we built the bank in under fourteen months famously from start to finish. Um, and that included integration of some very new AI software. A fairly radical interface, which I think uh, we will talk about later. Um, but we wanted to spend as much time as possible understanding the customer. Uh, and, and as you can appreciate in such a geographically diverse region, whilst people may be young or people may be mobile, the day-to-day nuances of their banking experience are different. So we wanted to try and give everybody um yeah, a, a genuinely different experience that would that would both add value to them. And, of course, we are a business and it would um, uh, help us with acquisition and building our presence in these markets. So that's the, that's the kind of strategic premise, if you like.
2: And tomorrow recently expanded into Indonesia. Are there any further expansion plans we can expect to see this year?
1: Uh, okay, not this year, not this year. Um, perhaps in future years. We were very, again, we were, we've been very um, public. It's been in our um, stock market announcements that we always looked at Thailand then Indonesia, then possibly Vietnam. And then we may bring the brand back to our home markets of uh, of Singapore and Malaysia. I, I should point out we have a very, very strong mobile banking app uh, and presence already in Singapore and um, and um, Malaysia, which, which has the brand name Mighty so we always figured that we would um launch tomorrow in markets where we we wanted to reach a different uh segment so um not this year but perhaps um in future years we may um venture into into the markets like vietnam
2: and what is the digital banking landscape like in southeast asia and how does it differ from other regions like europe and the americas
1: so um let me let me make a differentiation between digital banks and digital banking. Okay, so if we if we talk about digital banks as as the what we now know as the neo banks the, in the West, it would be you know the Monzos and the and the Starlings of the world. Um, in that regard, there there haven't been that many true um, digital banks in ASEAN. That is because uh, most of the regulators um, haven't really issued licenses recently there has been a digital bank license uh um issued in singapore so so there have been five licenses issued here for for standalone digital banks neo banks if you like for um uh, there have been some uh, digital banks like uh our, our competitors dbs have digibank which they started in india and brought to um to indonesia in indonesia itself there have There've been one or two. There's a, a bank called Genius, Oval, um, Thailand, not so much. And um, Vietnam, I think, has only recently seen uh, some digital banks, true digital banks launched. Uh, there's one recently launched, I think, called T-Nex. Um, within that landscape, though, digital banking, if I switch from the neobanks into banking, has been very competitive here for a long time. In fact, um, you know, originally coming from the UK, and then living and working in Singapore for some time. I used to, you know, sometimes smile when, when I'd hear that we, oh, you know, everybody is like, look at Monzo, look at what the you know, what is happening in the digital banking market. And we would all shrug and go, Yeah, uh, you mean you didn't have that? You mean you don't do that? Um, so as I mentioned, our our own, you know, core digital banking apps, such as a uh, Mighty or even our competitors' apps here in Singapore, like OC and DBS um are famously very, very far ahead. And I think often win win awards. And um uh so digital banking was was quite popular. Now if I look at the wider region, Thailand, the Thai banks themselves are, are are very strong generally. They had strong digital propositions. So SCB and K Bank have very strong digital propositions. So when we launched tomorrow in in Thailand, that was the kind of benchmark. We had to make sure that we were as, as good if not better than those banks. Indonesia is a very, very vibrant digital landscape. So not only have we got uh, banks digitising, there's a lot of digital startups. And I mentioned I mentioned Genius before, which is a bank. OVO, um, famously we've got the the unicorn Go Gojek GoPay, um, which is which is the giant ride-hailing, uh, the kind of the rival, if you like, to Grab which is also now moving into financial services. So the market's extremely vibrant, I think. You know, we talked about it in the intro. Um, and all of this does is it, it sharpens your game. It raises the game quite, quite markedly. So I think it's fairly competitive. Um, consumers are generally well, um, well-versed in digital. Um, that's, that's usually across all segments. We still serve a lot of what we call omni-channel customers as well, so people who do come to branches and have more sophisticated needs in our home markets. But in the markets that Tomorrow operates in, Indonesia and um, Thailand, we are, we're seeing a lot of digital competition, and we welcome that. I think that's really good. It's helped, us, it's helped us massively in terms of what we were challenging ourselves with and what we could do. Yeah. So I would say overall, very, very vibrant, a lot going on. A lot of investment coming in and um uh, a market of of a population if you like who are very early adopters in this space well now
0: we're here in part three for fintech jail uh Hmm. This is the section where we ask for an industry term, buzzword, or trend that our guest has had enough of and wants to see locked away in our Alcatraz of fintech terms. Um, Sharon and I will then decide whether it should get sent down. Although, new thing this season, if people want to bring uh, words that are already stuck in there out of the jail, if they want to break them free, they can. So, uh, Stuart, what term do you want to see locked away or set free?
1: Blockchain or AI used in a very general sense. So you know, I go to events and people say, "You know what, AI, blockchain," and there's no specific, there's no specifics. I think those terms have become too general. So I probably lock those away. Um, I may well also lock Challenger Bank away as well.
2: <laughs> Ooh, well, we actually have um, all three of those currently in the jail. So blockchain was <laughs> <laughs> mentioned. Um, earlier on um, in our podcast so that was episode seven when we had uh, Victor Tracudas uh, who's the CEO of Plum um, and he pretty much reiterated what you said. So he noted that what irritates me is that it's used as though it's the solution to problems that existed for very long clearly that's just a way to pass information into businesses communicating i just don't see that blockchain is revolutionizing how we do things um and we gave it five years and probation with reviews um (laughs) so do you want to extend that is five years um and probation long enough for you
1: yeah i think that's i think that's long enough i think that's long enough yeah
2: And I believe we also had artificial intelligence quite a few times. Um, (laughs) People were quite persistent with putting it in the jail. So um, episode 12 is when we were monitoring it. um, And that was with Matt Sattler, who's the head of HSBC's Innovation Labs. Um, And he essentially said that you hear AI on a day-to-day basis but when you really scan to see how many companies in the world and the market capital are actually making it real, those numbers of companies dwindle down to a handful. Um, and it did also crop up once again on the following episode when we had Travis Skelly, who is the director of venture investing at City Ventures. Um, and they pretty much gave the same reason. So we thought, One year with a review is fine. And then it came back again (laughs) um, with Manuel Silva, who's the general partner at Muro Capital, which is um, Santander's inner ventures. Um, And we had to just lock it away. So we gave it five years at that point. Um, And challenger banks, I believe we did have challenger banks. Um, Let me have a look of when we had it. Challenger Challenger Bank was episode eight when we had Sophie Gibault, who is the chief growth officer at OpenPaid, um, and she essentially said, it's not about putting down the Challenger Bank industry, it's about the misuse of the term. We've been using the term Challenger Bank since 2014 to 2015 and applying it to banks and non-banks. What we call neo banks are companies that don't have a banking license, and I think those companies shouldn't be called challenger banks and we also locked it up we gave it two to three years with a review so the argument now is do we extend it (laughs) what do you think Stuart um
1: the the extend challenger bank yes why not
2: oh yes all right it looks like perhaps Um, it's gonna get four years what do you think Alex
0: uh yeah I mean um do it <laughs> uh, <laughs> as long as we're, as long as it's not like you know going for three to four years to 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 life give them a, give them a few more it's bad behavior
2: <laughs> yes it was certainly a bingo for all of the ones that are locked up I guess in any case it makes our strict uh harsh sentences justifiable now
0: yeah yes. I mean who knows yeah. what's gonna happen to AI at this rate right. if everyone, if we keep yeah. if everyone keeps wanting to put it away
1: i think everybody reflect i think the the you know to the earlier point that ai is a, is a is a large term and i think what frustrates everybody is that we sometimes use it and i know we we're, we're guilty of this as well um, and i actually do implement the ai here um, and it's genuine ai and it's it's a catch all term for many different things right it's more when it's bandied around as a buzzword at, uh, at conferences I think that's what, that's what starts the grid. Challenger Bank I think um, I guess we're a type of Challenger Bank tomorrow um, yeah, we'd rather, I, don't, I don't think we see it like that I think we just see ourselves as, a, as providing a banking service a good banking service on a customer who am I challenging? Challenging myself trying to win um, you know the customer's trust and loyalty so I think Challenger Bank's become a buzzword as well
0: That's all we have time for for this episode of What The Fintech. Thanks to Sharon and Stuart for joining me. Before we sign off though, we've got uh, socials and websites to plug. If anyone wants to to plug websites, ventures, all sorts of things. Uh, Stuart, you're the guest, anything you'd like to plug?
1: Uh, Of course, I'd like to plug um, tomorrow. Please follow us also on TikTok. We've we've been doing a lot of uh, innovative campaigns on TikTok in Indonesia, um, where you can learn the uh, Tomorrow dan- Dancers. Yeah, so that's a very shameless plug. Apologies.
0: No problem. I think that's the first time we've had a TikTok plug on the podcast. So that's a that's a definite a groundbreaker so there.
1: Please learn the Tomorrow TikTok dance uh, specifically in Indonesia.
0: I <laughs> I'm making no promises. Um, Sharon, where can we find you online?
2: oh wow now i feel old there's a bank with a TikTok, <laughs> and i don't have a TikTok tock account and i think <laughs> i don't intend to and um, so you can find me at fintech kits on twitter because i'm a millennial and i'm not gonna go on TikTok. tock um, and it's at fintech kits so just fintech the way you spell it and kits like football kits and um, you can also just search my name on linkedin and just send me a request willy-nilly why not because everyone seems to do it without any sort of mutuals and also i don't mind it and they come up with some interesting suggestions for the podcast for topics in the future Um, also check out the february edition of the banking technology magazine It will be out by the time this comes out, and it will be focusing on predictions for the year. So we take a look at the crystal ball to see what's going to go down this year. But of course, no one can really predict what's going on, because I certainly couldn't tell that there was a pandemic on the way. All right, that's me. (laughs)
0: Brilliant. Uh, And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at at adhamilton91 and on LinkedIn just by uh, searching my name uh, and looking for the Fintech Futures Association. Uh, And as for Fintech Futures itself, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at at fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching for Fintech Futures and looking for our lovely logo. Uh, if you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favourite podcasting service. Uh, we always appreciate any help, and if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review, recommending it to a friend, posting about it on Twitter, posting about it on LinkedIn, uh, doing a TikTok dance, uh, then please, <laughs> please go ahead. Uh, we we're, thanks for any and all support. Um, we'll see you soon again for another episode of What the FinTech, but until then, goodbye.